Hello and welcome back to the Second World Sepsis Congress. Over the next 1.5 hours, we will receive insights into the epidemiology of sepsis from a great lineup of speakers from around the world. If you want to listen to one specific speaker, please use the chapter markers. If you want to see the slides of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for World Sepsis Congress there. Now, let me hand it over to Jeremy Kahn from the United States to get this session started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Second World Sepsis Congress. Uh, this is the fourth session of the day entitled The Epidemiology of Sepsis. My name is Jeremy Kahn. I'm professor of critical care medicine at the University of Pittsburgh, and it is my distinct honor to be moderating this session. I would like to welcome everyone all over the world. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. This is a worldwide audience representing over 150 countries, and it's a real pleasure to be here. We have six fantastic speakers today discussing what I think is one of the most uh, important topics of the entire Congress, which is the epidemiology of sepsis. Obviously, uh, what cannot be measured cannot be understood and improved, and yet there are many challenges to understanding the global burden of sepsis. And we are fortunate enough to uh, have a number of experts to be discussing this topic today. Uh, the way this will work is we'll hear from each speaker. If you do have questions, please um, type them into the public audience chat, which is on the left side of your screen. I cannot guarantee that we'll be able to get to all your questions, but I'll try to get to as many as possible as this session moves along. Uh, with that, it is an absolute pleasure to introduce our first uh, speaker. He is Bin Du, a professor of internal medicine and critical care medicine at Peking Union Medical College and the immediate past president of the Chinese Society of Critical Care Medicine, who will be speaking on national estimates for China. Thank you and take it away, Bin Du. Well, thank you, Jeremy for the kind introduction, and today we'll talk about the epidemiology of sepsis in China. I have no conflicts of interest with regards to this topic, and uh, uh, from the very beginning, we all understand that the uh, Dr. Uh, Martin, Greg Martin, reported that the, uh, during the, uh, the uh, 20 years of period of time, that the incidence of the sepsis has been increased significantly uh, from 80 something uh, uh, per 100,000 population uh, to the uh, more than 240 uh, uh, cases of 100,000 100, population uh, per year during a 20, 20 years period of time. And, and in a systemic review of, uh, conducted by Dr. Uh, Reinhardt and his colleagues, that the, uh, they estimated that during the past decades that the uh, population incidence rates of the sepsis was a uh, 437 cases per 100,000 population per year that the global with a global estimates of uh, 31.5 million new cases of a sepsis globally that they, uh, based on the uh, the uh, uh, data from the uh, high-income countries and regions in the world, and how about China, which is the uh, the most popular uh, the uh, country in the world, and the first national estimates of the uh, 
uh, sepsis epidemiology in China was conducted more than uh, 15 years ago, uh, which is a, a, a observational study, one year uh, observational study conducted in, in 10 surgical ICUs involving approximately uh, more than 3,000 critical patients. And they, the investigator reported that the, uh, the prevalence of the severe sepsis and septic shock was approximately 9% with a 28-day mortality rate as high as 40, uh, 45%. And about five years later, when conducted a two-month of the, the observational study in uh, 22 general ICUs in, uh, in mainland China, and reported that the prevalence of the severe sepsis and septic shock was uh, approximately 37% of the cases and with a hospital mortality rates of one, more than one third. And, and however, uh, and one, one, one way compare our data with that of the uh, European countries, we can see that the prevalence of sepsis in Chinese ICUs was, uh, is uh, equivalent to the average rates of the, uh, the, uh, the, that of the uh, European countries. And, and however, this kind of a study are, have some limitations because it's have inaccurate estimates of the septic cases. And for example, the uh, Dr. Angus and his colleagues reported that at least a half of the septic patients uh, were treated in general wards rather than the intensive care units. And uh, what is more peculiar in mainland China is that we have no knowledge about the population which is the denominator because we have a a a, a severe problem of the uh, floating what we call the floating population because uh, in the year of the uh, 2017 which is the uh, last year that the uh, according to the chinese government the chinese floating population all the mobile the migrant population was estimated as the uh, 244 million or equivalent to uh, one sixth of the Chinese citizens, so that's why that we we have problem with the denominator. We don't know the uh, the the uh, population, the uh, the uh, the the population is. So that's why when conducted a retrospective study, which is the uh, try to investigate a population-based epidemiology of sepsis in a sub-district in Beijing city. Uh, during a two-year uh, uh, period, we we actually uh, uh, this is a subject Yuetan subject of the uh, Beijing area with an area of more than four square kilometers with uh, covering uh, twenty-six communities with a adult population of approximately of uh, one one hundred thirty thousand. In the year of the 2010 consensus, and here we can see this. We we obtain that the uh, the hospitalized uh, the uh, information of the hospitalized patients from the Beijing Healthcare Insurance Information System, and uh, which is approximately a more than uh, uh, 21,000 admissions during the two two year study period, and we. Uh, by man manual review of the uh, uh, 
uh, hospital records, uh, records that we identify the patients who developed the, the sepsis during the hospital stay or uh, hospital admission. And among the, uh, the uh, uh, 21,000 uh, patients, hospitalized patients, we identified a total of uh, 1,716 patients who developed sepsis according to the ACCP and, uh, and the SCCM criteria, which is a sepsis 1 criteria. So, so corresponding to 8.1% of the total hospitalized pa hospitalization. And moreover, that the uh, 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 this uh, this shows that the uh, the uh, 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 population-based uh, sepsis epidemiology or the uh, incidence of the sepsis are categorized by age and sex, which uh, uh, shows that the uh, uh, incidence of the sepsis was in increased as the uh, aging of the patients as well as the uh, the male patients had the uh, the male patients have the highest the higher incidence of the sepsis this also showed that the uh, the mortality rates of this uh, sepsis uh, categorized by age and sex again it showed that the uh, as aging of the patients the mortality rates increased Significantly. So, based on our our data, that we estimated that the uh, uh, the uh, incidence of the sepsis was approximately eight point one percent of the uh, the uh, hospitalized patients, or corresponding to or corresponding to approximately five million patients. Uh, Every year. However, these kind of patients have uh, these kind of studies have the limitations because it's only uh, the the national estimates of the uh, uh, the uh, sepsis epidemiology uh, merits merits a a a. Uh, uh, meticulous interpretation because it's not representative of the national population. So, uh, uh, in the next stage of the study, we actually refers to the help of the so-called National Mortality uh, Surveillance System, which covers approximately uh, one-fourth of the national population of the Chinese uh, uh, of the Chinese population. So uh, we actually uh, obtained uh, the data from multiple course of the deaths, uh, as well as the population as economy status, as well as the uh, healthcare resources. And, uh, uh, and more importantly, we identified the cases of a sepsis according to the, uh, based on the ICD-10 coding for infections as the major course of the death. And, And the hypothesis of this study is that if any of the acute infections were listed at the major course of the death uh, in any patients, the patients should be considered as having SIRS or meeting the criteria, the SCCM criteria of severe sepsis, of sepsis, actually. Uh, and 
And this is uh, a, the uh, example of this desulfurcated example. And the next slides show that the uh, uh, the previous study showed that the uh, based on the uh, on on the previous study that the SD coding strategy has uh, significantly varied uh, significantly in the uh, in the uh, uh, the uh, sepsis epidemiology, uh, which varied about the uh, three folds in the incidence of the sepsis. So that's why when conducted in our study, that we conducted a, a, a validation study, which is a cross-section cross study uh, uh, with approximately 4,000 deaths between the uh, one-year period, uh, that we showed that the, our ICD coding strategy had a positive predictive value of 98% with a negative predictive value of more than 80%. Uh, 80%, which is uh, regarded as uh, accurate uh, prediction. So based on our study, we estimated in the year of the 2015 that the uh, 20, uh, uh, approximately 13% of the uh, death, national deaths, was attributable to what we call the sepsis-related mortality, which is uh, equivalent to more than 1 million deaths in the year of the 2015 was attributed to, to set Sepsis, and this slide shows that the uh, that the uh, uh, mortality is uh, uh, categorized by uh, different age groups, as well as the uh, the uh, uh, different regions that uh, ranging from the uh, 33.4 to 132 uh, deaths per hundred thousand population uh, per year in the year of 2015. How and uh, in the multi-level regression analysis, we identified that the increasing age and male sex and presence of the uh, comorbidity was associated with an increased sepsis-related mortality in our country, as well as the uh, more years of education, as well as the uh, the uh, more a a a, a disposable income per capita was associated with decreasing the uh, uh, the uh, sepsis-related mortality in mainland China. So we concluded that standard sepsis standardized sepsis-related mortality rates in China was significantly higher than that of the directed countries and varied according to the uh, socioeconomic uh, the uh, the indexes. And according to our uh, estimates that the uh, sepsis-related mortality was estimated at the fourth, the uh, leading cause of the death in mainland China, uh, only sec uh, only uh, following about the uh, uh, the following the uh, cardiovascular, malignancy, and respiratory, the uh, the uh, causes of death, and so the uh, inclusion inclusion we we. We understand that the uh, sepsis is a common and fatal clinical syndrome in mainland China, although there is a limited epidemiological research in China. And the incidence rates were comparable to that of the high-income countries and regions with mortality rates associated with their age, and sex, and comorbidity, and socioeconomic factors. With that, uh, thank you for, for your attention. 
Thank you so much um, for that incredible overview. Um, I am, in the interest of time, likely to move on without questions, but several things struck me about those data. First of all, simply the staggering number of 4.6 million hospitalizations and 1 million sepsis-related deaths. And it does strike me that in not only very large countries, but also fast-growing uh uh, populations, it's essential to not just know what the epidemiology of sepsis is, but anticipate it as uh, these mass migrations and mass growth is happening in order to do public health planning. That's certainly a major issue for China and for the rest of the world. Uh, again, thank you again, Bindu, for that excellent talk. Uh, we're going to move on to our second speaker, who is uh, Carolyn Fleischmann-Struzek. Um, Dr. Fleischmann-Struzek is a research associate at the Center for Sepsis Control and Care at Jenna University Hospital in Germany, and is going to be talking to us about global and national estimates using ICD data. Take it away. Thank you, uh, Jeremy, for the introduction and the invitation to speak about global and national estimates on sepsis epidemiology using um, ICD data at the Second World Sepsis Congress. Um, let me start to introduce you to the importance of this topic. Um, also, sepsis is a major cause of global morbidity and mortality. Um, there is only little data on sepsis incidence. That means the number of sepsis cases related to a country's population in a year and sepsis death. Um, data is missing for many countries, uh, leaving many white spots on the world map. Uh, only for a couple of countries, all high-income countries, uh, national data on sepsis epidemiology could be identified in a comprehensive review of current li research literature. Uh, this is why the World Health Organization urged all its member states uh, to improve the monitoring of national sepsis incidences, in particular based on ICD data. Uh, ICD stands for the International Classification of Diseases and is a healthcare uh, classification system by the WHO, um, providing a system of diagnostic codes for classifying diseases. Um, codes are assigned of, uh, at the time of hospital discharge uh, and are collected mainly for billing reasons, but they are also used for epidemiological monitoring or in uh, death certificates to classify the underlying cause of death. Um, a majority of the existing studies on population-level sepsis epidemiology relies on databases of ICD-coded hospital discharge diagnosis. For Germany, for example, we found an incidence of 335 hospital-treated sepsis and uh, 138 uh, hospital-treated severe sepsis cases um, per 100,000 population based on nationwide DHG data in 2015. Nearly uh, every second patient with severe sepsis, 44%, um, died in hospital. The incidence of sepsis increased by an annual mean of 5.7% uh, between 2007 and uh, 2013, whereas the mortality decreased slightly from uh, 49 to 44% over time. Similar trends were found in other countries, such as the U.S., where the frequency of hospitalizations with severe sepsis increased from 143 per 100,000 U.S. adults in 2000 uh, to 343 per 100,000 in uh, 2007, 
which is equivalent to an average annual increase of um, 16.5%. Overall, in-hospital mortality rates of severe sepsis decreased from uh, 39 in uh, 2000 to 27 in 2007. To determine um, the underlying reasons of this phenomenon um, is complex. Biological and medical uh, factors associated with the aging of the population, as well as an increased availability of intensive care facilities and immunosuppressive or invasive medical therapies may play an important role. Above that, um, coding habits may have changed over time and are prone to monetary incentives. Uh, thus, a progressively more sensitive coding may capture a larger but less severely ill group of patients over time. This phenomenon was uh, described as Will Rogers phenomenon. And um, yes, to further investigate this phenomenon, um, Re and colleagues investigated um, this phenomenon in a study and compared estimates for sepsis incidents based on ICD data to estimates based on clinical case identification in electronic health records. Um, they found that uh, between 2009 and 2014, Sepsis incidence using clinical criteria was nearly stable, uh, whereas incidence based on ICD data increased significantly, um, proving that the observed annual increase of sepsis cases seems to result to a considerable decrease from improved coding of sepsis. Another interesting fact that this study shows um, is that um, there was a considerably smaller case rate of sepsis cases when sepsis was identifi identified based on ICD data compared to clinical data. Only 30.5% uh, of sepsis patients um, that were identified using clinical criteria in electronic health records received an ICD code for sepsis. In a validation study comparing coding of sepsis in hospital discharge data with clinical sepsis diagnosis in manual patient chart review, uh, we found an underestimation of sepsis cases by up to 3.5 fold for sepsis in Germany. That means the approach of estimating sepsis epidemiology based on ICD data relies on accurate coding of disease. This is why different case um, identification strategies emerged um, for the identification of uh, sepsis in hospital discharge data, not only relying on so-called explicit sepsis codes for which I presented the data so far, um, but also mirroring the clinical sepsis definition by combining codes for infection and organ dysfunction in ICD coding. This strategy was named the implicit method or Angus amputation and is less prone to coding incentives, um, but may lead to an uh, overestimation of sepsis cases. A study by Gesky and colleagues demonstrated that uh, there is an up to 3.5 fold difference in the incidence of severe sepsis depending on the method of case identification used. Uh, therefore, uh, the results of epidemiological studies um, on sepsis may uh, always or, or 
may always need to be interpreted uh, in respect to the case identification uh, strategy used. Um, let me summarize. Um, ICD data are an important source estimates on sepsis epidemiology given their comprehensive availability in large uh, databases. Um, estimates confirm sepsis as a major and most likely underestimated cause of morbidity and mortality worldwide. Given the fact that estimates are influenced by changing coding habits and the case identification strategy used, um, the assessment of the true burden of sepsis requires improvement of coding practices and further development of robust case identification strategies. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman Struzek, for that fascinating talk. Um, we do have time for a question, and I'm certainly curious. Your your data demonstrating the limitations of ICD-9 codes for sepsis epidemiology surveillance are compelling, um, but you seem to suggest that there's still room for the use of these codes to do epidemiologic analyses, the alternative, of course, being to just abandon the codes and rely purely on clinical screening, which we'll hear about later. Um, do you think, then, there is a role in the future for ICD-10 codes, or is it is it time to recognize their limitations and move on in the modern uh, electronic health records towards pure electronic surveillance? Um, well, I think there there is a room uh, for ICD coded um, study, uh, uh, studies based on ICD coding on sepsis epidemiology. Um, given the fact that many sepsis cases occur outside the ICU, and it's very difficult to capture all these cases in in uh, clinical studies or um, in studies in general, when uh, there is no such system as electronic health records in the country. Um, this is, I think, why the WHO underlined the importance of ICD coding um, to monitor sepsis um, epidemiology in uh, different nations. Yeah, that's definitely true. I, I, I tend to agree with you about having um, this important role, particularly outside the ICU. Also, you know, particularly in the outpatient setting, you know, we, we did hear in the first with the first speaker that we just simply don't know a lot at all about sepsis cases that are seen in the community and are not hospitalized. Um, I wonder if you could comment on what is known either in Germany or elsewhere about the use of ICD codes in the outpatient setting, in the emergency department setting, or even in the clinic um, as a tool for sepsis surveillance, because even, even the data that you showed here are largely still limited to the inpatient setting. This is true. Um, in Germany, we uh, have a really uh, strictly divided system of in and out outpatient treatment, um, and um, there's lots of insurance data um, of the outpatient um, consultations, which may be an interesting source uh, of yeah sepsis surveillance. But uh, to date, it is not used for that. But um, I'm sure uh, that really interesting data uh, for further analysis. Um, yeah, it's definitely something interesting to talk about. If uh, anyone on the uh, webinar has additional questions, we certainly um, welcome the opportunity to hear them. All you need to do is type them in the left side of your screen into the uh, public audience chat. Um, while we have um, just a few more seconds uh, Carolyn, if you don't mind, to, 
what is what is the next step that your group is doing in um, in Germany to sort of move move this along um, uh, in terms of improving? You you, you mentioned a, a major focus is sort of improving how we use ICD nine or ICD codes rather, and getting people to be better at ICD coding in order to improve sepsis surveillance. How would you go about doing that? How would you make the coders better? Uh, well, actually, actually, at the moment, we are trying to um, uh, find out more about um, the uh, validity of sepsis coding in Germany. Um, we had a single center validation pilot study uh, comparing estimates for uh, sepsis uh, incidents based on ICD data to a manual patient chart review, and we are going to repeat that for a, in a, in a multi-center trial to better understand uh, which uh, factors, patient factors, or um, other factors influence the coding of um, sepsis and maybe factors that can be changed um, in order to gain better uh, validity of, of sepsis coding and administrative data. Um, because to, mm -hmm, sorry. Oh, no, well, just to say thank you very much. We are going to uh, move on, but this was an absolutely um, uh, fascinating talk, and we greatly appreciate your time. On that note, we're going to move on to our third speaker in the session, um, who is Rashan Hanifa. Rashan is a intensivist and an anesthetist, as well as a sepsis epidemiologist working at University College in London. And he is going to be talking to us about mapping diseases, um, sepsis in resource-limited settings. Uh, Dr. Hanifa, please go ahead. Thank you, Jeremy, for that kind introduction. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, thank you to the organizers for being kind enough to uh, afford an opportunity um, at this Global Sepsis Alliance um, meeting. It's a, it's a real honor and a pleasure to try and present a little bit of information and some ideas about how we might go about mapping sepsis in resource-limited settings. Um, so maybe just a couple of caveats. Um, perhaps also the reason I have been asked to speak here is because um, I'm directly associated with a network uh, where we try to improve critical care and acute care outcomes in resource-limited settings. And that's working with the University of Oxford and some non-for-profit organizations. I mentioned that because uh, I'll try and illustrate a little bit of what I think might be strategies using experiences we have directly encountered. So when we talk about uh, mapping sepsis in resource-limited settings, firstly, what are resource-limited settings? And I think we've already had some flavor of what that might be. Um, we've understood that it's definitely not the high-income countries. So we are talking about low- and middle-income countries. Sometimes it comes as a surprise to people that that's predominantly the vast majority of people in the world live in those countries. So by some estimates, more than 80% of the world is what we are talking about. Um, it is also a truism that uh, the voices from those places, not only in common with sepsis or other diseases, quite often are not as loud as the voices you might hear from the other parts of the world. Um, that, is, that is a phenomenon which is quite universal, but I think it's quite important to remember we are talking about the vast majority of the world. And if you then talk about mapping diseases such as sepsis, I think we've already heard a couple of excellent talks 
about how the heterogeneity of sepsis um, between and within countries, within age groups, impacts how we understand and how we try to control and manage sepsis. I would actually propose that this heterogeneity and this variation extends beyond sepsis. And that's something which uh, I think we should also consider because if you think of acute illness, if you think of critical illness, if you think of the deteriorating patient, whether that is due to sepsis or not due to sepsis, I think these themes still prevail. And I will try and illustrate a little bit about those uh, similarities in my talk, if I may. And if we talk about mapping diseases, I don't necessarily mean just talking about the diagnosis or the causes of that disease, in this case, sepsis. Because it's important to understand, as we've heard from some of the talks in this session and previously, how the processes of care uh, be used to managing these diseases, whether those patients are managed in high dependency settings, whether they are managed in intensive care settings, whether they are managed in an outpatient setting before they come to the hospital, what kind of resources are available to manage these patients, whether antibiotics are available, vasopressors are available, intensive care is available, whether surgical access is available, and we know from the big drive to improve global surgery, how how difficult source control access is to a vast majority of the population who live in low and middle income countries. And that also then links directly with the training. What kind of training is available to people who are trying to manage these conditions? I think when we talk about diseases and mapping their their prevalence, their epidemiology, we also have to consider what what tools are available, for example, whether that is to try and use things like SOFA, whether that's possible to use, how valid would QSOFA be, and I know there'll be some conversation about that. I think it's important to think about this in a more holistic manner. So if we think, what do we know about uh, sepsis, for example, in resource-limited settings? I think we've already seen this slide a couple of times in this session um, about how the really good quality data about sepsis is limited predominantly to high-income country settings. There is increasingly data from low and middle income country settings, and I think we'll come to that a little bit later, but predominantly good quality data remains limited to high income country settings. And then followed by the obvious question, is it necessary? And I hope you will be convinced as I am that it is important uh, for several reasons. One is because indeed as the vast majority of people live in these settings, it is important to know more about them. Secondly, the heterogeneity, as you might see, whether that is Ebola virus disease, whether that is dengue, whether that is even diseases like malaria, whether that is malioidosis, the heterogeneity needs to be understood. And even in diseases like what you might understand to be traditional sepsis of gram-positive, gram-negative bacterial sepsis, even then the presentation to hospital, whether those people got antibiotics before they got into hospital from a GP, whether they got uh, native treatment, whether they are able to have source control, those things become very important. And I think, therefore, hopefully, the case is made that we must understand this heterogeneity better. So if... 
And then I think we've also seen this slide from the Lancet Global Health Paper. This is a study done by the Oxford unit uh, I'm directly associated with, again, showing not only the heterogeneity of the organisms causing sepsis, but how also it is difficult to get the microbiological diagnosis in a vast majority of those patients. Uh, sometimes because microbiological facilities are not available, sometimes because there is a cost implications about doing a culture, which sometimes a clinician feels is not necessary, they treat with antibiotics, sometimes because the patients already had polypharmacy in terms of antibiotics, anti-infectives, uh, anti-malarials before they get into hospital. So if that is the case, then why is the mapping or understanding of these diseases in resource-limited settings a challenge? Again, I hope I don't have to uh, win you over to uh, understand that this is a challenge. The challenges of resources are well understood. The challenges of overburdened clinicians are well understood. The challenges of doing continuous high-quality surveillance and audit in these settings are well understood. But also perhaps what is less understood is the challenge of utilizing the existing information the existing resources a little bit like the approach uh, demonstrated um, with the ICD coding, uh, a little bit like using information which is already available to clinicians, researchers, administrators to try and answer real-world questions about the diseases we are encountering. And I'll try and illustrate a little bit of that. Perhaps the frequent challenge which is underplayed a little bit in these settings is the capacity to conduct high quality studies whether that is observational studies or interventional studies in addition to the cost factor the ability to reliably and in a robust manner conduct and conclude these studies in a manner which wins over the local population rather than them perceiving these are some parachuted interventions which are being tested in that setting is also a challenge and these create difficulties for researchers uh, in this setting. So if those are the challenges then is it is it all doom and gloom? Is it not possible to address the mapping of these diseases? Um, I certainly don't think so, and I think there's a good, uh, good cause to be optimistic about that. We heard about how the WHO is advocating the mapping of these diseases using traditional and routinely collected ICD codings. That's happening already, and I think it's important to utilize that as much as possible. Understanding the caveat that that information is different to what you might get from an observational study or an epidemiological study or a randomized control study, but it is information which is out there and which can be made better and more usable, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. Secondly, I think initiatives such as the Global Sepsis Alliance, and I know there is the African Sepsis Alliance, and there's conversations about trying to have something similar in Asia, uh, which will hopefully promote, advocate uh, some of the work we are talking about in this session. And also, I think there is real interest in trying to use available studies, available data sets to try and answer research questions related to sepsis and deteriorating patients. I know Christina is going to talk about uh, some of the work she has very nicely done from 
uh, low and middle income country data sets and that is perhaps a really nice example of how existing information could be used so what we have done in our experience in uh, the strategy we have utilized uh, in in south asia is to try and use the clinical necessity of enabling better information availability for patient care whether that is in public health settings or in acute care settings or critical care settings there is a dearth of information availability clinicians don't have access to information i'm just going to go to this next slide and i come back in a moment clinicians in this slide you can see how there are bottlenecks for managing acutely unwell patients in terms of flow of information this these bottlenecks prevent the recognition of deterioration they prevent accurate and timely referral they prevent escalation they prevent post discharge management and they limit how clinicians communicate with each other and also they limit transparency audit benchmarking and how patients and their families can interact and understand this information now we are not talking about necessarily implementing a complicated electronic health record in many of these places those challenges remain but by trying to focus and enable um, perhaps simple platforms which use basic clinical data which is already being collected by enabling clinician led uh, locally designed platforms which are tablet computer mobile phone based which make some of the information available already on paper records more digitally accessible by enabling more validated data entry by enabling better visual display of that information whether that is dashboards for the clinician whether that is dashboards for the administrators and whether that is enabling those that information to be accessible to patients and their relatives i think make that information available for researchers administrators to then ask better clinical and research questions the advantage of doing it in that way is that it makes people buy in to the work we are trying to do um, because the stakeholders are better engaged they understand the questions you are trying to address are clinically relevant they understand that these are real world problems you are dealing with they also understand that you are not focused necessarily on one disease that you understand that it is the unwell patient who has poor outcomes in these settings you are focused on they also are in uh, encouraged that the data is visible that they can interact with the data and that there is no malicious intent to portray countries or settings or hospitals as Uh, somehow imperfect um it also means that people get used to having this kind of information and they are more familiar with interacting with that information and then the question comes how might you use that information and hopefully this slide illustrates a little bit of how that information might be used so so at the top you have a couple of the papers and i know christina will be talking about that shortly but also we have the dashboards which we use to encourage clinicians administrators and patients to interact with these patients with infection who have organ dysfunction and how you might improve 
their care processes. So in summary, um, I'd like to think the mapping of diseases, whether that is sepsis or any patient who's acutely unwell in resource-limited setting is important. And it's important when we are trying to map these diseases that we understand there are different approaches, whether they are studies using routinely available data or using information platforms such as ours. But I think perhaps by putting those together, there's an opportunity to influence and interact with these diseases in a more realistic manner. Thank you, Jeremy. Oh, that was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, the challenges here are immense. Um, one question that came over the channel um, was about the biggest challenges in these low and middle income countries compared to high income countries. So obviously, uh, sepsis surveillance is a massive problem, even in wealthy nations. Um, what do you think are the top one or two problems facing low and middle income countries that need to be dealt with um, to start um, you know, raising the bar in those areas? Thank you, Jeremy. I think that's an excellent question. Uh, quite often, people focus on the things which are obvious, I think, uh, which is like money, training, um, uh, and so on. But I think I, we find the biggest challenge is engagement. Even when you try to get this kind of information, when it's real time, when it's usable, when it's clinical, administrative, patient information, to get people to engage with it in a manner that they believe in and then to get people to use the information in a manner which impacts patients on the ground, I think is the biggest challenge. I will not claim that we have the answers to that, but I will say that we are closer to the answer than we were when we started. And it's really exciting that we are able to get such movement uh, to get patients and families interested in that information, and perhaps that's an avenue for progress. That's fascinating that even in the era of technology, that it's these low-tech solutions like clinician engagement that are the key to getting unbiased answers. I think that's particularly true in in, in uh, low- and middle-income countries because of the risk of bias, because if only the mo highly motivated hospitals and health systems are participating in these surveillance activities, then you do get a risk of bias. I, I'm sure that Christina is going to mention some of these later. Thank you so much again. Um, with that, we are going to move on to our uh, fourth speaker, uh, who is uh, Chanu Ree. Uh, Dr. Ree is Assistant Professor of Population Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Harvard, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare. He's not only an intensivist, but an infectious disease physician um, at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And he is going to be speaking to us on national estimates of sepsis using electronic health records. Dr. Ree, take it away, please. Great, thank you very much. We'll go ahead and get started. I have no disclosures. So I'll start by talking a little bit about what's been known about sepsis epidemiology. So many studies have um, been published demonstrating a rise in sepsis incidence over the past several decades. And uh, most of this has been done uh, using administrative data. And there are two major strategies to capture sepsis using administrative data, uh, the so-called explicit sepsis codes, which generally use codes like severe sepsis or septic shock or septicemia, and what's been called the implicit uh, set of sepsis codes, which uses infection and organ dysfunction codes. And both of these have trade-offs in terms of sensitivity 
and specificity. More recent estimates in 2009 demonstrated that the incidence of sepsis nationally ranged from 900,000 to 3.1 million using four different administrative methods. But you can see that all four methods demonstrated a rise in incidence. Similarly, using four different methods, the mortality of sepsis ranged from 12 to 26%. But again, from 2004 to 2009, all methods demonstrated a decline in mortality rates, which has generally been attributed to improvements in sepsis care. However, there are several limitations of administrative data for sepsis surveillance. So as those prior slides show, different administrative definitions yield quite different estimates of the incidence and mortality. And the de administrative definitions generally have low to moderate accuracy relative to medical record reviews with, again, trade-offs depending on which uh, uh, definition is, is used in terms of sensitivity and specificity. Um, but very importantly, uh, diagnosis, diagnosis and coding practices are also changing over time. And this is a result of increasing awareness and recognition of sepsis. Uh, there's also been increasing emphasis on documentation. And it's impossible to ignore the fact that there are financial incentives to code for higher complexity. This is a study we published a couple of years ago where we used national administrative data to look at hospitalizations with infections as a primary diagnosis from 2003 to 2011. And we showed that sepsis or septicemia codes were being increasingly used, in fact, almost a threefold increase over this time period. But when looking at the infections that most commonly uh, lead to sepsis, like pneumonia, intra-abdominal infections, urinary tract infections, or bacteremia, those are all stable or, in some cases, actually decreasing, suggesting that part of this may be a shift in how infections are being coded uh, more towards sepsis. <clears throat> so what my colleagues and I over the past couple of years have been working on is conducting uh, clinical surveillance using electronic health records. So instead of administrative data, we have been asking, can we track clinical indicators of sepsis using more consistent and uniform criteria, looking at markers of presumed infections, the cultures and administration of antibiotics with concurrent organ dysfunction, things like vasopressors, mechanical ventilation, changes in baseline laboratory values. And some of our early work in our local academic hospital showed that this was both feasible and accurate compared to medical record reviews. This led to a project that was funded by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, um, <clears throat> where we had a multi-center study with a goal to create an objective sepsis surveillance definition based on clinical data that can be applied across different EHR systems, and then to apply this definition to diverse hospitals from across the U.S. to generate what we felt would be more credible estimates of the current national sepsis burden and recent trends. So when we developed the surveillance definition, we started with a sepsis-3 framework of infection plus organ dysfunction, but we adapted this to facilitate wide-scale retrospective surveillance. And so we focused on criteria that were objective, routinely measured or used to treat sepsis, and easily ascertainable from different EHR systems, and able to be applied consistently and uniformly. The definition we came to consensus on was this. So we looked for markers of presumed serious infections, so blood cultures being obtained, and patients being treated for four or more antibiotic days. Fewer than four days were allowed if the patient died or was discharged to hospice or another hospital before four days elapsed. And then concurrent acute organ dysfunction, things like, again, initiation of vasopressors, mechanical ventilation, doubling in creatinine, 
doubling in bilirubin, a decrease in platelets, or an elevated lactate. And we had standardized rules, standardized rules for uh, calculating baseline laboratory values. So just showing this again briefly, the surveillance scheme basically will look for a blood culture, and then would look for a plus or minus two-day window around the blood culture, look for the initiation of antibiotics that were then continued for four days, and concurrent organ dysfunction. And those were labeled sepsis episodes or sepsis hospitalizations. So we had a cohort of 409 U.S. hospitals from seven different data sets, and <clears throat> compared to all AHA or American Hospital Association hospitals in the U.S., you can see that the distribution in terms of geography, hospital size, and teaching status was fairly representative. Our major focus for the study was the year 2014, in which we had 2.9 million adult encounters, or about 10% of all U.S. adult hospitalizations. The major findings were this. So we found about 174,000 uh, sepsis cases in adults, which translated into a 6% of all hospital admissions. 87% of those were present on admission compared to 13% hospital onset. Over half of these patients were admitted to the ICU. 17% of them had positive blood cultures. 15% of them had septic shock as defined by vasopressors and elevated lactate. And 15% died in hospital. And the mortality for hospital onset sepsis was almost twice as high for sepsis compared to sepsis present on admission. This table just shows the demographics and comorbidities of the sepsis patients we identified. And the main highlights are this. Most cases occurred in patients that were 60 years old or more. Uh, about 60% occurred in males. There was diverse racial and ethnic representation. And chronic comorbidities like diabetes, lung disease, heart disease, kidney disease were quite common. When delving into the discharge disposition of these patients, <clears throat> above and beyond just death or alive, we also find, found that 6% of these patients were discharged to hospice, which means that more than one in five sepsis patients either died or were discharged to hospice. Half of them were discharged home, and almost a quarter were discharged to non-acute care facilities like rehab. We also looked at all the patients in the cohort who died, which is about 2.5% of all study patients. And... 35% of those patients had clinical indicators of sepsis. So in other words, of all patients that die in the hospital, more, more than a third appear to have sepsis. We then used a table. Uh, we, we then stratified our estimates um, by stratifying hospitals into region, size, and teaching status to generate estimates of sepsis across the whole country. And this resulted in our estimate of approximately 1.7 million adult sepsis cases in the U.S. in 2014 with 270,000 deaths. We validated the surveillance definition relative to medical record reviews using sepsis-3 criteria as a standard. And you can see in this column here on the left that <clears throat> the definition is not perfect. There is no perfect way to capture sepsis, but the sensitivity and positive predictive value compared very favorably to administrative methods of explicit sepsis codes or implicit sepsis codes. Lastly, we applied this data to the hospitals from 2009 through 2014 to look at incidence and mortality trends. And using administrative data, again, the incidence appeared to rise steadily each year, consistent with many prior published studies. 
But when using EHR data with more consistent criteria, the incidence was relatively stable, a slight trend towards an increase, but not, not very much. Similarly, when looking at short-term mortality defined by in-hospital death or discharge to hospice, <clears throat> there was a steady decline using administrative data. But when using more stable clinical criteria from EHRs, there was only a non-significant trend towards improvement over this time period. So in summary, we found that sepsis is common, approximately 6% of adult hospitalizations, translating into about 1.7 million U.S. cases annually. It's deadly. More than one in five sepsis patients died or were discharged to hospice. Sepsis was present in, in more than one-third of all hospitalizations that ended in death. It potentially contributes to 270,000 270, US, deaths, U.S. deaths annually. Sepsis trends have been mostly stable from 2009 to 2014, and clinical data contrasts with administrative data that suggests rising incidence and declining mortality, which is likely biased by increasing sepsis awareness, recognition, and coding. And EHR-based clinical surveillance is accurate. Again, it's imperfect, but it is better, appears to be better than administrative data. And lastly, um, <clears throat> just pointing out that CDC has uh, translated the surveillance definition into a toolkit uh, named Adult Sepsis Events Toolkit. And it is online now with the goal to help hospitals that are interested more objectively track their sepsis rates and outcomes using EHR data. So that's it. That's all I have and a lot of acknowledgments here. So thank you for your attention. Happy to take any questions. Thank you, Chani. That was fantastic. What what an unbelievable effort to coordinate this. And you and your colleagues are just to be congratulated. Um, it's simply Thank daunting you. for those of you who don't know how hard it is to work with some of these records. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you what I asked um, Carolyn Fleischmann-Struzak earlier, which is that given given your findings and the findings of others, is it just time to abandon ICD codes as a method of sepsis epidemiology research and surveillance, or is there still a role for ICD-9 or ICD codes rather as um, these electronic tools that you are proposing become um, more prevalent? That's a great question. Uh, it's a little bit of a loaded question. I, I guess I'll give kind of a answer, which <laughs> I, think, I think it depends. I wouldn't say they should be abandoned altogether. I mean, clearly, as you pointed out, I mean, this was a lot of work, and um, it is, you know, it takes reasonably sophisticated EHR data and people who know how to program to be able to implement this. So um, there are obviously those logistical challenges, and obviously administrative data is cheap, and it's easy and available. Uh, I think we just have to be careful uh, with how it's used. So I think when trying to study trends over time, I do think that is a big problem. And I, I think we should be very skeptical uh, now of, of studies looking at trends and incidents and mortality using uh, administrative data. I also think, and we didn't go into this in this particular study, but I think when trying to compare hospitals based on sepsis rates or outcomes using administrative data, I think that's also um, potentially uh, very limited too, because there's we know that there can be a lot of variation in how sepsis is diagnosed and coded um, between hospitals. So I think, I think for those uh, purposes, it can be problematic. But I think, again, for other type of studies, if you want to just identify a cohort that likely had sepsis and you want to look at various aspects of their care, um, then using uh, administrative data with sepsis codes, it's, it's not a bad way to go because uh, we know that they generally do have pretty high uh, positive predictive value. Uh, again, the problem is just the changing practices over time in terms of diagnosis and coding. 
as well as the variability. Yeah, I think that's a nice assessment, sort of like if you, as, as long as we understand the limitations and right. are prepared to address those biases, then, you know, no data are, are uh, not worth using. It's just sort of going in eyes wide open. Um, but uh, allow me just one more question then. Um, you do... The question arises, like, we don't have a good reference standard. We don't know for certain whether some of these patients have sepsis. And you will agree, and, and I completely agree that with the benefits of electronic screening, but as you state, they're imperfect. So I'm curious then, why, um, what are the biases, right? When, if we're exchanging one set of biases for another set, what are the biases with electronic data that we have to be concerned about? So when we go to make you know, temporal evaluations, or when we go to make cross-hospital compar comparisons, we can still go in eyes wide open. Yeah, that's a great question. So yeah, happy, definitely EHR-based surveillance ha has limitations. And I think some of the ones that would jump to my mind is, uh, I, I, so even though I think it's more consistent over time, there it is relying on indirect proxies of sepsis. So, and some of those are based on clinical decisions, which can certainly uh, be variable across clinicians, or perhaps even the threshold for some of these can change over time. So a good, a good example that always comes up is in initiation of beta suppressors. We know that, again, um, you and I might have a different, slightly different threshold for starting pressors. Um, and also we know that the trend in terms of fluid resuscitation and when to start beta suppressors, uh, that, has, that has changed over time as well. I'll also point out the lactate um, component. Um, tracking lactate um, has some challenges as well because a lot of QI initiatives will focus on increasing um, uh, lactate testing rate, so that can introduce some biases as well. So those are the things that would jump to mind, and, and definitely we have to be aware uh, of that as well when, when, when using this method. Wonderful. Well, um, thank you so much, Shani. That was fantastic. Um, we're going to move welcome. on to our second to last speaker, uh, who is Adam Linder. Uh, Dr. Linder is an associate professor in infectious disease at Lund University Hospital in Sweden, as well as a uh, fantastic sepsis epidemiologist, and he is going to be talking to us about national estimates uh, for Sweden based on chart review. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm very happy to be part of this fantastic e event, and I will tell you a little about, bit about a study that we con conducted and published uh, two year years ago. It was work from my colleague, Lisa Mel Melhammer, where we did an estimate of the sepsis incidence for Sweden based on a chart re review. Um, <clears throat> um, yeah, as we have heard from the other excellent talks, the, um, the sepsis, sepsis incidence based on ICD code or, or ICD code abstraction have been somewhat var various, and there, was no, there are no clinical data except from ICU wards. And in Sweden, the case is that only approximately 10% of the sepsis or septic shock cases end up in the ICU. As we heard from Dr. Fleischmann Strusek, there is a great vary in the, in, in the sepsis incident depending on how you code it. So what did we do? We performed a retrospective review of medical records for all patients who were started on intravenous antibiotic ther therapy at hospitals on four different dates, evenly dis distributed over the year in 2015 from two provinces of Sweden. Um, the two pr 
provinces comprises uh, one mil 1.3 million uh, adults. Uh, that's about 16% of the adult Swedish pop- population, and it's served by 11 hosp- hospitals. So the, the, the trick here was that in Sweden, if the doctor physician wants to prescribe and institute antibiotics, um, he or she has to pass this anti-infection tool. Um, it's a national database which registers all out and in patients who are started on antibiotic therapy. So there is no way to circumvent this if you want to uh, prescribe antibiotics in Sweden. Um, so we, we use this anti-infection tool to identify the, the patients. And we use quite strict, the strict definitions of in infections and also the definitions of sepsis and organ dis- dysfunction. We looked at both the sepsis 2 definition and the sepsis 3 de- definition, somewhat mod- modified to be adapted to wards. Uh, since in the wards you don't always have the PAO, PAO2, so we used also the saturation and calculate, calculated the PAO2 uh, using the Ellis equation. So the results, uh, we included 500, and, or we scanned the charge for 557 patients and 438 patients were in, include, included. Uh, in 99 of those, we could not find evidence of in infection, despite the fact that the patients were given an intravenous in uh, intravenous antibiotics. So we, we excluded those leading 339 um, patients. And for 109 of, of those, that 32 percent. Uh, they fulfilled the definitions for the sepsis three, and for uh, 96, that 28 per, uh, percent of the patients fulfilled the criteria for the sepsis two. So this is equivalent to uh, to an annual incident of patients receiving intravenous antibiotics for a diagnosed infections of. 2,425 per 100,000 inhabitants. That's equal to 250,000 Swedes per per year. And the incidence, the annual incidence for sepsis 2, we found to be 687 per 100,000 and uh, slightly higher, but not significantly higher for sepsis 3, uh, 780 per 100,000. This, this is not age-adjusted, though. So we found, not surprisingly, that uh, the sepsis 2 and sepsis 3 uh, does not uh, find the same patients. They are someone, uh, somewhat different co- cohorts. Um, just looking at the... Um, dem- demographics, we could also see here that uh, the sepsis incidence is higher uh, from the age of 65 and up- upwards. Approximately 25% of the patients had no com- comorbidities, and approximately 20% of the patients uh, developed uh, nosocomial infection, hence were not uh, community uh, acquired.
Um, yeah, the difference in sepsis two and sepsis three, you all know this, but it's uh, more common to uh, have a cardiovascular uh, dysfunction uh, according to the sepsis two def def definition, and it's easier to have a respiratory dysfunction in the sepsis three def definitions. And the mortality for these two groups were approximately be uh, were between 26 to 32 percent and 20% of the patients had a positive blood culture. So this study, the strength, what we think is that we identified all patients treated with intravenous antibiotics in all different departments, different clinics in two entire regions of Sweden. That's emergency de de department, medicine, surgery, oncology, ICU, and so on. And we identified both community-acquired and nosocomial sepsis. Um, and we meticulously reviewed the, the charts, and it was done by two independent uh, infectious disease uh, physicians. So we think that the data has quite high quality, though the study was small and uh, retrospective. If we look at similar studies, uh, they, the, uh, there are some studies that have shown similar uh, in incident numbers. One is the study by Hen Hendrickson from 2015 that looked at only uh, ED patients, med medical ED patients, and found 456 uh, per 100,000. And also the study presented here by Re Pre uh, previously and Don Donnelly. So to conclude this, uh, we found that the sepsis incidence in Sweden was uh, higher uh, using this chart re re review than uh, using ICD codes. And uh, up to 30% of the sepsis cases were nosocomial, uh, and not surprisingly, the sepsis 2 and sepsis 3 uh, definitions to some extent, extent recognized different patient groups. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Adam. That was an absolutely fantastic um, talk and really nicely complements some of the earlier work we see. It also, from my perspective, just highlights the immense challenge of doing sepsis epidemiology, even in um, relatively wealthy, developed countries like Sweden. I'm wondering if you could just reflect a bit on the challenges you faced in this study and think about how you might go about um, upscaling this work to get a get a um, better sense of what the population estimates are in Sweden? How could you go about um, broadening this this incredible effort? Because it just seems like even in the somewhat small scale, it wasn't indeed an incredible lift. Yes, it was a, was a lot, lot of work. In Sweden, we have... Uh we have our nas national sepsis groups. I have actually thought, thought of, uh, I mean, uh, dividing the work on, we, in Sweden we have 26 prob uh, provinces. So um, if we could, yeah, divide this work all over Sweden, uh, that would, of course, give more val validity to the data we, we have. Because, I mean, uh, we fully acknowledge that the study is small. Uh, but we did did not see so much difference between the different. We we took one was one date in Jan 
January, one in April, one in uh, July, and one in October. And it was slightly higher sepsis incidence in January, but uh, quite similar over the, the year. Over the period, right. And, yeah, and what yeah. do you know about those? I was really struck also that about a third of the patients in your sample had no comorbidities, but yet yeah. got um, sick enough in order to have to receive IV antibiotics. What do you know about those patients in particular, their outcomes? Um, that seems like a um, obviously relevant, a very relevant population. Exactly. The, uh, the the mortality rate for the whole group, or uh, the 90-day mortality rate was 32%. Or, or twenty six percent according to the sepsis three de- uh, definition, but the mortality was higher among those with com- comorbidities. Um, and, but other than that, it, it, I mean, there were that was patients with ne- uh, pneumonia, skin and soft tissue infection, and urinary tract in the infection. So there, there were no difference in the focus of in, in infection or. Uh, um, if they have bacteremia or or not, depending if if they had uh, comorbidities or not. Right. Let, let me bring in a question from earlier in the session um, re- related to the time frame by which uh, we look at mortality for sepsis patients mm-hmm. in these mm-hmm. epidemiologic evaluations. So you chose 90-day mortality, which could be argued is you know very far out, and yeah. particularly in a developed nation, is is very hard to. Um, you know, to follow patients, or rather in a low and middle-income country, is very hard to develop to uh, follow patients for 90 days. Yet, on yep. the other hand, you don't want too short a, um, a time frame. Um, how did you settle on 90, and what do you think the sort of right number is? <laughs> That's an excellent uh, question. We actually presented the in-hospital mortality as well, and that was 20%, and the 90 days mortality was 30% uh, yeah. using the sepsis. So, I mean, I, I'm not sure. I mean, the, from my understanding, the trend is going towards a longer follow-up since we know that sepsis patients do not do well in, in the long long term. So maybe one in – so in developed countries where you have the possibility to fo- follow patients for long, longer, I think it's rel- relevant to look at one-year mort- mortality as, as well. But that's my opinion. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think I think it behooves us as as the scientific community to report all these numbers, right? Knowing that a low and middle income country is not going to have a ninety day or no. one hundred and eighty no. day mortality, and also Definitely. knowing that in hospital mortality might mean something very different in different countries. You know, for all these studies, we need to be careful about reporting all of these numbers to allow uh, comparable, you know, facile comparisons across across groups. Well, that was absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Adam, so much. We're going to go ahead and move on to our uh, next speaker, who is Christina Rudd. Christina is at the University of Washington in Seattle in the United States, but soon to move to my own institution, the University of Pittsburgh, to join our faculty. Um, She's doing some really incredible work that she's going to share with us now related to the topic of challenges to assess the global burning of sepsis. Christina, please go ahead. Hi, I'm Christina Rudd, and I'm going to be talking today about the challenges we face in assessing the global burden of sepsis, and I'm going to be using a project that I'm currently uh, helping to lead as an example of this. 
So first, I want to give you some background information on the Global Burden of Disease Study, or GBD, because this is a vital component of the project that I'm going to be presenting to you today. So the GBD study is produced on an annual cycle by the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, or the IHME, in Seattle, Washington. And it's a massive effort to quantify the comparative magnitude of health loss um, due to various injuries and diseases. And all of their estimates are stratified by age group, sex, and geographic location for specific points in time. Their estimates focus on all aspects of health loss, including mortality and incidence, which we're going to be estimating as part of the sepsis projects that I'll be sharing with you. But they also produce estimates on prevalence, uh, disability-adjusted life years, years of life lost, etc. So this is an example of data output produced by the GBD study. So GBD includes over 1 billion data points. Um, and it primarily focuses on underlying causes of premature death and disability from more than 300 causes, um, diseases, and injuries. They produce estimates from more than 195 countries around the world, and many of those countries um, have estimates at the subnational level. So this figure is one example of data output from the GBD study. This is a plot of the relative burden of causes of death globally for all ages and both sexes in 2016. In blue, you can see the burden of death due to non-communicable diseases. In red, you can see those due to communicable diseases or maternal or neonatal conditions. And in green, you can see those deaths due to injuries. So the goal of this project is to estimate sepsis incidence and mortality for every age group, um, sex, location, and year from 1990 through 2017. And all of our estimates are going to be stratified across those greater than 300 underlying GBD causes. So while GBD has previously exclusively focused on those underlying causes of health loss, such as pneumonia, this is a new, really novel endeavor um, where we're producing estimates in parallel to the GBD study and separate from the GBD study, really focused on intermediate causes of health loss, such as sepsis. So here's a visual representation using mortality as an example, just to emphasize the fact that we're producing sepsis estimates across all of the GBD causes. Um, so that means that we'll produce sepsis estimates for patients who are classified as dying from a communicable disease, such as pneumonia, but also for patients who are currently classified as dying from a non-communicable disease, like lung cancer, or an injury, such as road traffic accidents. So I just wanted to give you a, a really high-level kind of summary of what methods we're using. So one of our main principles really is to maximize our leverage of the GBD analytic infrastructure and their data sources because they're just so rich and so powerful. So we're using one of the main GBD principles, which is that of envelope, where we're imposing rigorous and evidence-based upper bounds on our estimates to avoid overestimating the burden. And as I mentioned, our sepsis estimates really are separate from the GBD study, um, but they're very much in parallel to the GBD study and are quantitatively related. And I'll be happy to answer questions about how our estimates are linked to the main GBD study a little bit later on. 
Um, the cornerstone of our um, methods is the multiple cause of death analysis and multiple cause of hospitalization analysis. So um, those are our data sources. And um, our modeling strategy to help us produce estimates for locations for which we don't currently have data incorporates the Healthcare Access and Quality Index, or HAQI, as a covariate. Um, HAQI is a composite indicator of healthcare access and quality that's independent of geographic location. So I'd like to briefly walk you through our methods as a way to highlight some of the challenges that we've encountered. So this is an international um, death certificate. Um, as, if you look to part one, you'll see four slots, A, B, C, and D, where clinicians or coders list the causes of death for an individual. Slot D is the underlying cause of death, and that's what's largely used by IHME to classify uh, the cause of each death. But slots A through C are intermediate and immediate causes of death, and those give us data on other conditions that contribute to that death, um, such as sepsis. So one of the challenges is, therefore, we need data sources that have at least three codes listed in part one of the death certificate. And I'll show you in a minute why we need three codes and not just two. Um, but we absolutely can't use death certificates that only have one code listed, that underlying cause of death. And unfortunately, that's what we have for the majority of the world. So how are we going to identify cases once we, once we have these data sources? Our case definitions come from the sepsis epidemiology literature, and we've modified them um, for the purposes of our study. Um, they largely draw from the INGUS criteria, for those of you who are familiar with those. So these are mutually exclusive categories. Um, first, we look to see if an individual meets criteria as an explicit sepsis case or explicit sepsis death. This means that a sepsis-specific ICD code is listed in slots A through C of that death certificate, so an immediate or intermediate cause of death. So, for example, if a patient has R65.2, which is the code for severe sepsis, that patient would be classified as a sepsis death. If a patient does not meet criteria for an as an explicit sepsis case, we look to see if they meet criteria as an implicit sepsis case. So this means that a patient um, has a specific infection ICD code listed as the underlying cause of death, so that's slot D on the death certificate, and in addition to that, they have a specific organ dysfunction ICD code in the chain of death. So for example, if a patient was listed as having acute appendicitis as their underlying cause of death, and then in addition to that, had acute respiratory failure listed as an intermediate or immediate cause of death, we would capture that patient as a sepsis case. So there are a few challenges here. First, um, these coding systems, such as the INGUS criteria, um, have really been used in a lot of population-level sepsis epidemiology studies in high-income countries, but their validity is largely unknown in low- and middle-income countries, tropical countries, um, with different uh, infection profiles and populations. So we've done our best to modify the INGUS criteria to really represent that global infection profile and be globally applicable, um, but we acknowledge that the system has not previously been validated in those settings. So another challenge that's maybe obvious to you at this point and has been a, a big um, hurdle for us is that obviously if something's not written down, we can't capture it. So 
um, the presence of sepsis and the presence of organ dysfunction needs to not only be identified by a clinician, but also needs to be recorded on the death certificate or in the um, hospital admission or hospital discharge administrative records in order for us to capture that case. We can't make up codes that aren't already there. And unfortunately, what we're finding is in a lot of places, um, these things just aren't written down. Another challenge is that these coding systems, such as the Angus criteria, are almost exclusively used in hospital administrative data. Again, these are hospital discharge and admission records um, or billing records. And I'm really only familiar with one paper out of the CDC that looked at the performance of these ICD-based coding systems in death certificates. And so really this is largely uncharted territory and we um, are really looking forward to future validations of the methods um, so that we are better able to kind of calibrate our results in these different sets of data. So all of those um, challenges <laughs> being what they are, um, I wanted to show you some of the input data that we're using for our mortality and our incidence estimates. So on the mortality side, we have access to over 100 million individual death records um, from the United States, Brazil, Taiwan, and Mexico um, across all of these years. Um, so this is fantastic, but it's also a major challenge because we're trying to produce fractions or sepsis estimates for the whole world based on just a few countries. On the incident side where we're using our hospital records, we do have a few more countries um, for which we have data and a few more years, and we have nearly 300 million individual hospitalization records. Um, but again, these countries are a far cry from the whole world. So in summary, the challenges that we're facing as we're trying to produce estimates for the global burden of sepsis are many. Uh, at the bedside, clinicians and coders need to not only recognize but also record the presence of sepsis specifically, or at least the presence of organ dysfunction in the setting of infection. Uh, at the population level, um, public health systems and countries really need the capacity to compile the multiple causes of death data and multiple causes of hospitalization data. And then we need them to be willing to share that data with the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation so that it could be used as part of this project. And then lastly, within the sepsis epidemiology community, um, we need our colleagues, uh, all of you who are listening, to help us validate these coding systems in more diverse populations and settings and infections. And we also need to look at how valid our coding system is in multiple data sources, such as death records and not just hospital administration data. So with that, I want to acknowledge my fabulous colleagues, both at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, as well as the members of our advisory board for the GBD Sepsis Project. And I'm happy to answer any questions. Christina, that was fabulous as always. Thank you so much. Um, I have so many questions, but we just have time for a couple. You know, one sort of larger conceptual issue when I think about GBD is that causes of death are not mutually exclusive. You know, the original GBD output graph you showed us did, though, have them listed as, as mutually exclusive groups. You either die of lung cancer or breast cancer. 
but with sepsis, it's a unique syndrome, right? It's, it's, you can die with lung cancer and, um, sepsis and multiple people do. So how is the GBD project thinking about sepsis when it's not a disease per se, but a critical illness syndrome that can span multiple diseases? Yeah, that's really the crux of why this project was created. That's a great point, Jeremy. So yes, the mission of the GBD study is to classify every death as due to one underlying cause. And they try to go as far upstream as possible. Well, this due to this due to this. And what was that ultimate underlying cause? And that's how the whole GBD study operates. And so what makes this project novel is really, um, for one of the first times, we're looking at GBD data and saying, okay, well, what else? What else was in that chain of death for the patient? And was sepsis specifically in that chain? Uh, and so the GBD um, will in future uh, cycles um, be adding in other processes, not just sepsis, um, to kind of have a take a similar look at their data and say, okay, well, what else is there as an intermediate cause of death or, or disease? Um, so, for example, um, they're going to be doing this with antimicrobial resistant infections and saying, all right, so this patient was classified as dying of you know, from their diabetes, but what was the more intermediate or immediate cause of death here? And was it um, something related to AMR? Christina, one last question for you, which is really, I think, sort of, I, I'm interested in your perspective having engaged the GB project, uh, but it's something that has sort of been an undercurrent of this entire session, which is, um, why do this, right? I think that largely the people on this webinar and the people who are participating in these sessions have drunk Kool-Aid. But mm -hmm. when we go out to public health in, you know, experts, when we go out to our hospital administrators and say it's crucial that we invest resources in better understanding epidemiology, what's the right answer? Like, how do we, what, what can we tell them is going to be the tangible benefit to society by doing these sort of large scale but quite expensive epidemiologic studies? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I really think about it in terms of who's going to be using the estimates that we produce and how it will be changing things for the people that actually have sepsis. And at the health system level, so health system administrators, public health professionals, those that are looking at um, distribution of funds um, within health systems, those patients or those people really um, need data to help inform their allocation of resources. And in some settings, those are pretty scarce resources. And so, well, it's important at, let's say, the infection control level or the epidemiology level to know exactly what bug caused the pneumonia and how many cases of pneumonia caused death in a given location. And that's what we're getting from the GBD data. Um, it, at some point, Really, we want to know how many ICU beds we need or how many patients are going to need supplemental oxygen or how many um, bags of IV crystalloid need to be ordered. And these are common resources that are necessary for sepsis patients. And so if we can provide estimates for sepsis incidence and mortality, people that are planning the care of these patients will have more data to help uh, organize that those kind of common threads in those patients' care. Yeah, that was an incredibly great um, summary. Thank you so much. Um, this has been a wonderful, wonderful session. I think everyone will agree. It was certainly a treat for me um, to hear from all these experts from across the world in really a unique format that can bring all of us together. I want to thank um, 
uh, all the organizers of the World Sepsis Congress, in particular the program chairs, uh, Flavia Machado, Simon Pinfer, and Conrad Reinhardt, and the Global Sepsis Alliance. Um, I'd like everyone on this call to remember to, if possible, participate in the GSA Global Quality Measures Survey. This will just take a few minutes. It's completely anonymous, and it really is an essential next step to understand how sepsis is measured and treated around the world. There's a link on your screen um, for you to get some additional information about how to participate in this survey. <clears throat> and with that, uh, I'm going to conclude um, this wonderful session. Again, thank you to everyone uh, for participating. Please do not miss the next session if you can join it, uh, Session 5, Improving Early Detection and Quality of Care. Again, thank you to all my speakers. Thank you to uh, the Global Sepsis Alliance, and thank you to all the sponsors who are uh, there present on the screen for making such a wonderful uh, event possible. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who contributed to making the Second World Sepsis Congress possible, especially our sponsors, which you can find on the Congress website. The next session will be Session 5, Improving Early Detection and Quality of Care, on Thursday, October 18th. We hope you tune in then. The second WSC is being brought to you free of charge, so if you enjoyed it, please visit the World Sepsis Day website and sign the World Sepsis Declaration there. It's like a petition against sepsis and also signs you up for the World Sepsis Day newsletter, which we send out every six to ten weeks. See you next week.